Hello and welcome back to another Gospel Topics essay. We are jumping in to the second of the series. Uh, we may go through more than just the, the Topics essays because there are some other, other topics that didn't warrant a full essay, but uh, that the church has talked about. So when we get through that series, which will take a few months, uh, we may jump into some of those. What do you think about that as a teaser, gentlemen? I love it. I want to get into the uh, Freemasonry essay and the Joseph Smith translation essay. Sounds fun. Oh, gosh. There are so many good things. Uh, I'm your host, uh, one of the three hosts, Alan Mount, and throwing it around the circle just to uh, introduce everybody again. Uh, first, you heard from Anthony Miller. I'm glad to be with you this morning. <laughs> Not as glad as me. Thank you. Not as glad as I am. It's good to have you again, Anthony. And Bill, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing wonderful, Alan. Anthony, good to be back with you as well, and uh, just looking forward to tackling these one at a time. Absolutely. And today, we're going to be talking about the Gospel Topics essay, Are Mormons Christian? Um, I uh, Yes. All right, this has been a, <laughs> another episode. <laughs> did you just answer the question, Alan? Is that I, it? We're I done. did. I think that's it. I think... Uh, we, okay, guys. Uh, wait, 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 wait. There's time. more complex... No, I, <laughs> there's... Yeah, there's some more complexity than that. Yep. Is there? Is there some more to talk about? I, I think so, too. Now... I do want to start before we jump into the essay itself of just asking both of you what your thoughts are on why was this topic deemed one of the top 12 topics that the church needed to cover for the gospel topics essays? I remember seeing this and going, well, what? Yeah, there are. I know that some of the complexity will come out as we start reading it, but Bill, what do you think? Do you have any thoughts on why why this would be one of the top 12 uh, topics they needed to cover? To, to As a convert to Mormonism, Alan, I certainly had conversations with others who were outside the church and taking maybe more of that evangelical perspective. I, th I think as a Latter-day Saint, you feel a tension between you and the greater Christian community. Um, but, but in terms of reconciling doubts or questions of the believing member, this essay seems very out of place. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. It was it's a really for a different audience than what the last essay, which was the first vision accounts. It seems like for a different purpose. A Anthony, any thoughts on that? Well, I I went back and looked at uh, the chronological uh, release of the essays, and this essay was re released at the very same day, uh, basic maybe the same time as the first vision essay. It was on November twentieth of twenty thirteen. And um, I think if we consider that this essay was released at the same time as the uh, First Vision essay, um, it might go to this idea that initially there might have been this tone that the essays were to provide apologetic type of material for people that were running across criticisms, uh, whereas as we go through the balance of the essays, it, it seems like the purpose of the essays are, are often more to help uh, members uh, who are struggling with faith uh, or trying to support someone who's struggling with their faith who have run across difficult uh, church history. So that, that's my take as why they included it. It does seem a little bit like a softball essay, but I think there's some complexity that's worth talking about with this. All right, so let's begin that talk. Uh, I'll start. I'll read the first paragraph, then we'll uh, we'll we'll start 
conversing amongst each other. So the title again is Are Mormons Christian? Members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints unequivocally affirm themselves to be Christians. They worship God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. When asked what the Latter-day Saints believe, Joseph put Christ at the center. Quote, The fundamental principles of our religion is the testimony of the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ, that he died, was buried, and rose again the third day, and ascended up into heaven. And all other things are only appendages to these which pertain to our religion. The modern day quorum of the Twelve Apostles reaffirmed that testimony when they proclaimed, quote, Jesus is the living Christ, the immortal Son of God. His way is the path that leads to happiness in this life and eternal life in the world to come. End quote. Do we have anything worth talking about so far? I, I just want to maybe just an intro. It, the church is always eager to proclaim itself as an entity that it follows and is led by uh, Jesus Christ. And it again, these other essays, as we pointed out, seem to be made for uh, a doubting audience or an out audience, as Anthony pointed out, trying to help out the doubter. And, and yet this one seems to be a way for the church just to stand up to uh, those outside of our faith and say, look, 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 here we are. We're Christian in the most truest sense of the word. So similar to our last discussion, I, I, I want to put some context, uh, at least my point of view in terms of context. So last time I talked about uh, confirmation bias and how we tend to see what we're used to seeing. Uh, and I gave the automobile example. And I think as we read through this essays, people who are coming from a point of view of more of the contemporary Latter-day Saint view of Jesus Christ and the Godhead, they're going to tend to, due to confirmation bias, see things uh, through that framework. Um, I, I would suggest that as we go through this, that we take into consideration that there's it's there's more complexity than this, and that there, um, the, the framework of the early development of the church uh, might have had a, a different bias, a different confirmation bias in terms that they might have been coming from a framework that we see, for example, in the Book of Mormon uh, with regard to the characteristics of Jesus and, and God uh, that, that in some ways seems to be more similar to current Orthodox Christianity than it does to contemporary Latter-day Saint uh, theology. The second thing that I would bring up also uh, to put this essay in context is that um, at, at some point um, by our human evolutionary patterns, what we did is we developed language uh, to be able to communicate with each other. And the words that we use uh, simply, simply represent symbols uh, that we attribute meaning to. And so when I use the word Christian or, or I talk about what it means to be Christian, I'm attributing or assigning some meaning uh, to those words. And I might be talking with you or somebody else or somebody across the street that may attribute different meanings to Christian. And I think it's helpful that when we're talking about these kinds of things that um, we recognize that um, uh, sometimes it's unhelpful to like pull out a dictionary and say, this is exactly what Christian means or my definition or attribution of the meaning of the word Christian is how we should measure everything and every, uh, everyone else in the way they use that word, um, because there's some differences here. At, at some point, at, as we go through the essay, I, I might express my biases that I wish that 
the essay would have been focused more on what we mean by saying that we're Christian uh, as opposed to uh, trying to parse our perception of what others mean by Christian uh, in a framework that makes us somehow fit into that. That's a really good point. Yeah, as we dive in here, the, uh, listeners, you'll you'll see what Anthony means. The the essay, if you're following along with us now, jumps into um, three main reasons why other people point at us as not fitting their definition of Christianity. Uh, before we we read that next part, I'm going to give a little touchy feely for a second um, through through the podcast in in your ears. Uh, that last sentence that we read, his way is the path that leads to happiness in this life and eternal life in the world to come. Uh, that, that one sentence can be the cause of, of some anxiety for people when what happens if you're on that path and you're doing your absolute best and you're, you're not experiencing happiness? I think sometimes that it's, it's easy to feel that, again, this goes a little bit off of the off of the topic of this essay, or excuse me, of this podcast talking about the, the core topic, but just that jumped out to me on what if you're, you are living it, you're on the path and you still don't have happiness. I think the, a lot of people struggle with that because they feel like they're not good enough, that they need to be doing better. Um, they're, they become hypercritical of every single little mistake, both in thought, action, and deed, action, and deed may be the same thing. But they got to be doing something wrong because they're not experiencing happiness, and the gospel says that they should be, and that can be difficult. I think it even goes a step further, Alan, which is that it sets up the idea that this is how it works for everyone else. And so as a Latter-day Saint, I can often remember coming to church early in my time in the church, in my first decade in the church, and I would come in, and I'm dressed in my suit, and I'm smiling, but I've got problems at home. Maybe maybe my wife and I just had a terrible fight and we're not getting along, or maybe one of the kids is struggling with something. Um, and, and there's this idea that as you look out across the congregation, everybody else is smiling. They're all in their suits and ties or their pretty dresses. And you assume that everybody else this plan is working for. and But for some reason, it's not working for you. And it all of a sudden adds some shame uh, as well if if you've set yourself up to think that as long as you're doing Mormonism the Mormon way, that you're going to be happy and fulfilled and, and, and things are going to, uh, the gospel's going to work for you. And, and sometimes it just doesn't, and it's not working for others either, but, but it's not safe to have the conversation that, that there is more than just me having a problem, but the guy next to me and the, and the, and the lady on the other side of me are having problems too. Yeah, very true. Um, stop arguing with your wife, man. I've just, you know. That's it. She's always right. If I just let her be right all the time. <laughs> Marriage 101. All right. Uh, Bill, could you read the, the next little paragraph that outlines the three, um, the three most often used reasons that Mormons are not Christian? In recent decades, however, some have claimed that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is not a Christian church. The most oft used reasons are the following. Number one. Latter-day Saints do not accept the creeds, confessions, and formulations of post-New Testament Christianity. Number two, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does not descend through the historical line of traditional Christianity. That is, Latter-day Saints are not Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or Protestant. Number three, Latter-day Saints do not believe Scripture consists of the Holy Bible alone, 
but have an expanded canon of scripture that includes the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. Each of these is examined below. So, Anthony, uh, that, the, that first part where it says, in recent decades, is this, it, did it just start now? What's, what's up with the recent decades comment? Yeah, I, I'm wondering why that made it through the edits. Um, uh, since the beginning, uh, not people that weren't following the Latter-day Saint movement questioned uh, whether the church uh, was Christian. And um, th- this has been a criticism for a really long time. So I, I'm, I, I really question, it'd be interesting to ask those who did the editing why they chose to represent that it's something that's more of a recent phenomenon right. uh, that happened And, in and what about decades. these three reasons? Um, if, 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 you, if you couldn't see these three reasons, would you have come up with these are the reasons why people don't think we're... And I say we are right. Um, why the LDS Church is Christian? Um, I, it feels a little bit straw man to me. Um, you know, when I speak with my uh, Protestant evangelical friends, you know, th- their top three reasons aren't these things. Uh, so, I mean, some evangelicals certainly are concerned about number three about the expanded canon, but in number two, Protestant Christians aren't concerned about a historical line of authority. They, uh, the way they reconcile things is, is they believe that, um, you know, if we're commanded to go baptize people and be baptized, that that commandment is what gives you the authority, that they don't be- believe that there's a necessary historical line of traditional priesthood authority or something like that. And so um, I, I, th- I think that, you know, this is a little bit messy, a little bit straw man, and I think we'll get more into these as we unpack each one of these issues in the essays, in the essay here. Well, let's dig into these, uh, each of these three. This is what the essay wants us to focus on, so let's do it. Um, Anthony, could you read that, that next section? Yes. Latter-day Saints do not accept the creeds of post-New Testament Christianity. Uh, is the title. And then scholars have long acknowledged that the view of God held by the earliest Christians changed dramatically over the course of centuries. Early Christian views of God were more personal, more anthropomorphic, and less abstract than those that emerged, emerged later from the creeds written over the next several hundred years. The key ideological shift began in the second century AD after the loss of apostolic authority uh, resulted from the conceptual merger of Christian doctrine with Greek philosophy. Man, Bill, you you inhaled, I think. You had something to say? I'm I'm sitting here thinking about, again, something you did last uh, episode, Anthony, was you were talking about Paul on the road to Damascus and the four gospel writers as we talked about the first vision. And you were pointing at why that was kind of... uh, uh, a, a, an, an untruth when they stated this idea that you know Joseph Smith contradicting himself is actually evidence of it being true, and they set it up by using these other examples where it's not the same person contradicting themselves, but there are multiple writers. And, and the problem when you went into that was to explain to a believing Latter Day Saint what is out there in terms of biblical scholarship, there's so much that the average Latter-day Saint is unaware of. And you run into 
um, the same uh, issue here. When when you start to say like, hey, in early Christianity, here's the way things were. And the reality is that if the average Latter-day Saint dives into biblical scholarship and looks at what all we can tell from the text of the document, things we can know and things we can maybe safely assume, the reality is that the very first generation of Christians uh, are much, much different than the way Latter-day Saint theology has posed them. And it's... Uh, unfair for the church here in this essay to kind of overreach and say, like, we know what this looked like, when in reality, it's much different than the average Latter-day Saint understands it to be. Yeah, I had the same thought where it says early Christian views of God were more personal, more anthropomorphic, less abstract than those that emerged later. I read that and thought, okay, now, now I do see where they're they're giving comfort to that believing or nuanced or or questioning member that's reading this of saying like, hey, it's okay, just rest assured that before the great apostasy settled in, this is what the entire Christian world knew and believed about God. And we've we've helped you get back there. So another way of framing what you just mentioned, Bill. Yeah, so at this point, I would uh, give a plug and highly recommend uh, Bill's Historical Jesus series uh, from a few years ago. And all the resources there, I'd highly recommend for people that want to do a deeper dive into uh, the development of the New Testament, I'd, I'd recommend Bart Ehrman's Misquoting Jesus and his uh, a follow-up book by the name of Forged. Um, and, and then I would go online and I'd watch debates between uh, scholar Bart Ehrman and evangelical uh, Christian apologists uh, that believe that the New Testament is... Uh, a very reliable eyewitness kind of thing, and, and uh, which most of those individuals that are debating Bart Ehrman, by the way, believe that Mormons aren't Christian, just as uh, an understanding there. So to put things in context, you know, if Jesus, uh, if the historical Jesus was killed in the early 30s, um, Paul didn't really uh, start writing epistles uh, until sometime, you know, he wrote his epistles between maybe 50 uh, A.D. and and 64 A.D. So these, these this is decades after the historical person named Jesus uh, was killed. Paul died probably in 64 or 67 um, A.D. Um, there was a siege of Jerusalem where uh, the Romans came in and they destroyed the temple and they killed thousands and thousands of of Jews. Um, many thousands of them were killed by crucifixion along the sides of the roads. And then subsequent uh, to that is when we actually get the Gospels written. So the the four Gospels weren't uh, direct eyewitness accounts uh, that, that were written contemporaneously to, you know, someone walking alongside Jesus taking notes. The four Gospels were written between 70 and maybe 110 AD, and they were written in Greek, which was a totally different language than Jesus, the historical Jesus and his original followers spoke. They spoke Aramaic. So um, there already would have been some sort of evolution or embellishment uh, by the time the Gospels were written because they were written decades and decades after the fact uh, in a totally foreign language based on oral tradition. 
I, I would mention also that uh, when we're talking about post New Testament Christianity and and this evolution over time, uh, and what gets represented is when we look at the epistles attributed to uh, Paul, uh, the book of Hebrews, the Epistle of Hebrews is actually an anonymous epistle that was later attributed to Paul. And almost all scholars believe that Paul did not write Hebrews. And other uh, epistles that are really important, it, it seems, at least in my view, to LDS uh, theo- Latter-day Saint theology are uh, epistles where 80% of scholars believe Paul didn't write them. So 80% of biblical scholars believe that Paul didn't write Ephesians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, or Titus, and scholars are split even on whether Paul wrote Colossians or 2 Thessalonians. So we need to understand that in context that, that there, by the time the New Testament came around, there already was... Uh, a, a chance for embellishment and change and adaptation of local beliefs and so forth. And we don't actually have the original manuscripts. We have copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies uh, of copies of copies um, uh, to get to what we actually end up with uh, in, in our New Testament today. Yeah, yeah and I'm only going to say just this, this is all going to be overwhelming to the average Latter-day Saint, and the suggestion from Anthony is to dive in and you know not take a five-minute blip of what we're saying here, but to go look at some of the things that he pointed you to so that you can begin to understand the complexity of the early Christian narrative, the fact that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not firsthand witnesses to the story of Jesus. They come in extremely late. And that we ought to at least recognize what the contradictions are in those stories, what those stories point to, what some of the facts that we know about the culture and area that Jesus would have lived in, and what all those things mean. We're talking at least dozens of hours to begin to understand it, and hundreds and hundreds of hours to be competent in understanding how all this stuff shifts and moves. Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting. I've never read the books that, that you just outlined, um, Anthony. I, uh, Bill, I did also kind of echo what Anthony said, loved the Historical Jesus series that you did. Uh, something that was very fascinating for those that are listening that, that would like another recommendation of homework for us to give you uh, was reading the New Testament in the order it was written, not in the order that it's presented, was kind of trying to clear my brain. I went through this exercise, clear my brain of everything that I've learned and been taught about the, the, the Christ of the New Testament and just let the, the, the text teach me um, in the order that it was written down to see what that natural um, evolution of doctrine or theology looked like in it. That was a fascinating process for me as well. Okay, uh, I'll read the next paragraph real quick. Latter-day Saints believe the melding of early Christian theology with Greek philosophy was a grave error. Chief among the doctrines lost in this process was the nature of the Godhead. The true nature of God the Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost was restored through the prophet of Joseph Smith. As a consequence, Latter-day Saints hold that God the Father is an embodied being, a belief consistent with the attributes ascribed to God by many early Christians. This Latter-day Saint belief differs from the post-New Testament creeds. 
all right, we got to talk about that one a little bit. In fact, we could refer the listener, if, you, if you're listening to this and have not listened to our previous episode of talking about the First Vision accounts, we get into the nature of the Godhead quite a bit on that. And, and my keynote on that is where it says God the Father is an embodied being. Um, they state that as very matter of fact, like this was revealed beginning at the church uh, with the first vision and it's it's set in stone and that's why our restoration was so important is because now it's very black and white. We understand the nature of God. Um, just that one specific sentence goes against what Joseph wrote in 1835 in the Lectures of Faith, um, that God is not an embodied uh, being. He is a spirit and the son is the embodied being. So it's this paragraph's a little bit troublesome because of uh, it presents it as though there was no evolution in our thought uh, and theology when really there was, and that's the exact thing that they're criticizing early Christianity for. Yeah, that there was an, it, they're pointing to an inconsistency in Christianity while kind of subtly claiming to have been consistent. And the reality is that when you add in the the Adam-God teachings, when you add in, as you point out, the lectures on faith, uh, and lots of other things within Mormonism, those first uh, 20 years of Mormonism, uh, from 1830 to 1850, 1860 even, there's a lot of fluidity uh, from Joseph Smith and, and even into Brigham Young, where this idea of who God is, what the Godhead looks like, what is their characteristics, what's their traits, all of that was quite fluid. Right. And, and uh, Anthony, I know you've got a few things to say here. Uh, you mentioned Adam-God theory. For those, uh, we won't get into, we can, I mean, we could talk a long time about that, but I, I would like to read a quote from Brigham Young about that exact theory, which uh, makes sense in the context of this paragraph and what you just said, Bill. So Brigham Young, one of many quotes um, about Adam being being the heavenly father. So he says, quote, Jesus, our elder brother, was begotten in the flesh by the same character that was in the Garden of Eden, and who is our Father in heaven. Now let all who may hear these doctrines pause before they make light of them, or treat them with indifference, for they will prove their salvation or damnation. End quote. There's a lot of others that we can go through there. Uh, one of them talks about uh, Brigham saying that this this was a teaching that came from Joseph, um, that Adam is the father. You think that could have something to do with with uh, people not thinking we're Christian, especially uh, a, a century plus ago? Yeah, I yeah, I mean, uh, contemporary morning Mormon Jesus or Latter Day Saint Jesus or contemp or then contemporary to Brigham Young, uh, what he presented in terms of God and Jesus is is very different than what most Christians today perceive uh, to be Jesus uh, and the Father. Um, this um, paragraph, it, it, the the part that really makes me uncomfortable is it seems like it's a, it feels like it's a dig on Christians uh, that don't hold the same reconciliations with regard to the to God as we do by saying that they are post-New Testament uh, Christians or, or that they subscribe to post-New Testament theology, when the truth of the matter is, um, and, and I'm going to share a couple things, that in the Latter-day Saint Church, uh, in the LDS Church, we subscribe to post-Book of Mormon theology with regard uh, to God. So it almost feels a little bit hypocritical to criticize uh, the rest of Christianity and saying that they're post-New Testament 
when we're actually post uh, Book of Mormon. So um, what I wanted to share is uh, there's a BYU professor by the name of Charles Harrell, and he wrote a book called This Is My Doctrine, and the subtitle is The Development of Mormon Theology. And what Professor Harrell, Dr. Harrell, from, from B, he's a professor at BYU, wrote in this book is he went back and he studied uh, the evolution of uh, theology in uh, LDS history. And in chapter six of his book, he talks about the Godhead. And I, and I think it's relevant. And so I'm sorry that I'm reading, but I think that'll be helpful for the listener. Um, Dr. Harrell writes, the term, quote, Godhead, unquote, is Middle English and means deity or godhood, which is a state or quality of being divine. And so I'd comment as opposed to like a first presidency kind of thing. Um, And continuing, he says, and its meaning in the King James Version, where it appears three times in Acts uh, chapter 17, Romans chapter 1, and Colossians chapter 2, is that it's a quality of being divine in Godhood. He, He writes, the underlying Greek in each instance also means deity or Godhood. In Paul's teachings, Christ was not in the Godhead, but the Godhead, or in parentheses, Godhood, was in Christ. He wrote to the Colossians, this is Paul uh, being quoted here, for in him dwellers, uh, in, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, unquote. The qualitative meaning of the word Godhead has faded with time to where the term is now used in many circles, including Mormonism, as a collective noun denoting Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So, so that's evolved. And then also from page 107 of his book, he writes, At the time of Christ in the Jewish community, from the first Christians came, from when the first Christians came, was predominantly monotheistic. Jesus spoke himself as being sent from, quote, the only true God, unquote, in John 17. And Paul declared that there is, quote, one God, the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, unquote, in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Although Paul professes a single God, he acknowledges Jesus as, quote, Lord, unquote, in the sense of God's agent in both creation and salvation. Thus, in New Testament theology, there is a single God, often referred to as the Father, whose Son acts as his delegate on earth. Nowhere uh, does the New Testament speak of God's, plural, reigning in a Godhead. In a few New Testament writings, Christ is identified with God uh, in John 1, in John 20, in Hebrew 1, uh, in Titus 2, and in Second Peter, but never as a capital G God or another uh, capital G God. Um, the Spirit uh, is an agent or influence uh, in the New Testament, not a being. And most theologians, theologians agree that there's no diminutive doctrine of Godhead or Trinity in the New Testament. So um, instead of me sharing my opinion, I wanted to share BYU professor uh, Charles Harrell's opinion with regard to what really existed in the New Testament and that we see the essay seems to be imputing something different than actually existed in New Testament times. Good stuff. Bill, I miss your voice. Why don't you read the next paragraph for us? 
whatever the doctrinal differences that exist between Latter-day Saints and members of other Christian religions, the roles Latter-day Saints ascribe to members of the Godhead largely correspond with the views of others in the Christian world. Latter-day Saints believe that God is omnipotent, omniscient, and all-loving, and they pray to him in the name of Jesus Christ. They acknowledge the Father as the ultimate object of their worship, the Son as Lord and Redeemer, and the Holy Spirit as the messenger and revealer of the Father and the Son. In short, Latter-day Saints do not accept the post-New Testament creeds, yet rely deeply on each member of the Godhead in their daily religious devotion and worship as did the early Christians. Yeah, this is, a, this is an interesting one. And, and Bill, I know you have a few things to say about uh, some of the language used here, but this is an interesting one because this paragraph kind of introduces the thought of uh, we're different, but we're actually really, really similar. Like they're trying to, they're trying to play both sides and not, I'm not sure if I'm trying to be critical. It probably comes out that way, but they're, they're saying with this entire essay, we're, we're actually really similar to you guys. We're really similar to, to the other Christian groups, uh, but we, we are different, and this is why we're different and why we're right, if that makes any sense. Yeah, the way in which we uh, separate and define the Godhead is different, but the traits that we give these members of the Godhead, these three, uh, seem to fall in line with where the rest of Christianity does. Uh, I'll tell you the the words that bother me the most, and and it's I'm being hypercritical here. I want to acknowledge, like I really don't have a problem with this statement, but the, if I'm going to be hypercritical, the one of the little things that just kind of gave me a little tension as I read it is this idea of claiming that God is all loving, and and there are other issues with the omnipotent and omniscient, but with the all loving, the idea that God is has an unconditional love for us, He's all loving. And the reality is that, again, when we dive into the details, it gets messier than that. Because in LDS theology, uh, President Nelson, back when he was a member of the Twelve, uh, gave a talk in the Enzyme, or gave a talk, I think it was in conference, and it makes its way to the Enzyme, obviously, where God's love is not unconditional. And my point being here that when you look at Mormonism collectively, when you get up and take the 20,000-foot view Diving into things like all-powerful, again, if we go back to the Adam-God teachings, there's this idea that God the Father has a God the Father, and that God the Father has a God the Father. And so this this idea of being all-powerful some way in Mormonism has some level of limitation, perhaps. The idea of being all-knowing, some of that, uh, I think, runs into issues with Mormonism. And then when you look at all-loving, again, we have taught various things. There are some leaders in Mormonism who have taught that God is all-loving and has unconditional love. And there are other leaders who have said God's love is conditional. Uh, and, and in that way, and when you look at his love being conditional, that kind of takes away from the idea of all-loving. And so again, just to recognize, like we want to claim a consistency we want to claim we hold a solid ground that we've never moved from, and there is some distortion uh, in Mormonism as you look at it collectively. Yeah, yeah. I um, I just mentioned that uh, we we talk a lot about being Christian, and I love the you know I think like I mentioned in the beginning, I think we should describe uh, you know Latter Day Saint the Latter Day Saint Church should describe what is meant to us by 
being Christian, uh, and then explain how we seek to to be Christian, um, as opposed to trying to attribute these other things. I, I think that you know, if you read general conference talks or you go to six months of sacrament meetings at a local church or whatnot, I, I, I think that what you'll find is um, that a lot of the talks are about priesthood and prophets and temples. And not very, not a very high percentage of them are about Jesus and the actual teachings attributed to him in the Gospels. And I think, you know, that's one of the criticisms that I remember over the years as a missionary and as an active believing member of the church uh, from non-members that that they would say something like, "You you you claim to to worship uh, uh, Jesus, but when I come, all the talks are about." not about Jesus. They're about priesthood. They're about temples. Uh, they're about almost a, a sense of adoration to current and past leaders. And and there were many times that I kind of had a hard time responding to that uh, in a way with a good answer because I didn't really have a good answer. Yeah. I experienced that too, just personally. And those moments where some of the truth claims didn't hold up, but I was still attending, uh, you know, full transparency for those listening. It shouldn't be too much of a surprise if you've heard any of my other stuff uh, on our podcast, but I don't, I don't attend anymore. But there was about a year and a half where I, I did, but didn't hold all the truth claims. And all of a sudden, those things that for 35 years I never paid attention to or realized were glaringly obvious. I was, I was thirsty for for teachings of Christ. And it was, it was, it became magnified and of importance to me, just like you said, Anthony of, oh my gosh, that's not a core topic that's really talked about a whole lot. All right. So let's move on to the next, uh, the next paragraph. And I'll read that quickly here. Latter-day Saints believe in a restored Christianity. Another premise used in arguing that Latter-day Saints are not Christians is that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does not descend from the traditional line of today's Christian churches. Latter-day Saints are not Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or Protestant. Latter-day Saints believe that by ministering of angels to Joseph Smith, priesthood authority to act in God's name was returned or brought back to earth. This is the restored, not a reformed, Church of Jesus Christ. The Latter-day Saint belief in a restored Christianity helps explain why so many Latter-day Saints from the 1830s to the present have converted from other Christian denominations. These converts did not and do not perceive themselves as leaving the Christian fold. They are simply grateful to learn about and become part of the restored Church of Jesus Christ, which they believe offers the fullness of the Lord's gospel, a more complete and rich Christian church, spiritually, organizationally, and doctrinally. As I'm talking, I'll just continue talking <laughs> because I'd like to unpack a, a little bit of that. You know, part of what I, I talked about previously on reading the New Testament and the order in which it was written, something that was, that was I, I shouldn't say clear, I'm certainly not a biblical scholar, but something that wasn't obvious to me was the fact or unclear fact that Christ established a church. Uh, I, when you read the New Testament, you you kind of go wait a minute did he did he establish a church and there's a lot of talk of the kingdom of god and setting up the kingdom of god in the bible dictionary of the lds scriptures um it, it says quote generally speaking the kingdom of god on the earth is the church end quote and by 
when you look at that, it doesn't fit in some of the quotes attributed to Christ. Um, that that definition of what the kingdom of God is doesn't doesn't quite fit. For example, just read one or two examples in Luke uh, seventeen twenty and twenty one. I think is probably the best example. Uh, Christ is talking um, in, in this in these few verses. It says, "And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come." He answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Uh, it, it seems like that is in stark contrast to the definition of the kingdom of God being a physical church that you are inside of. It directly says, No, it doesn't come from observation, it comes from within you. Any thoughts on that specific topic? I think I think that you know if people decide to do a deep dive uh, into biblical scholarship and you know books from Bart Ehrman and so forth, they might come to the reconciliation that um, that Jesus uh, participated in a movement within Judaism, and that over time what happened is. Uh, there were disciples or followers that extracted fr- things from that, and and they developed a sect uh, within Judaism. And it really wasn't until much later um, that some sort of an organiz- institutional organization, you know, was re- created. And 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 like I mentioned a little bit earlier, you know, the way we uh, as Latter Day Saints historically have talked about. This idea that the historical Jesus established an institution of a church. You know, we rely on epistles that are very, very late and uh, that probably weren't written by Paul. For example, Hebrews wasn't, uh, almost all scholars believe Paul didn't write Hebrews, and 80% of scholars believe that Paul didn't write Ephesians or 1st or 2nd Timothy. And we rely heavily on those epistles uh, with our narrative that there was an institutional church that that was created by the historical Jesus. So it's something for people to deep dive in uh, in order to be able to come up with their own reconciliations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, Jesus was a Jew and the scholarship points to the first generation assuredly, the second generation almost assuredly, and probably into the third generation of what we would call Christians were actually members of the Jewish faith who were practicing a, uh, a, a differentiation uh, by having Jesus be kind of an add-on to what they were doing. And, and when you go into the scholarship and you sense that, you realize like Mormonism needs, as part of its narrative, this idea that Jesus set up uh, a new church. Like he left the Jewish faith and said, okay, now I'm bringing this thing where I'm the center of it and it's Christianity. And so people get baptized and we're, we're having Sunday meetings. And the reality is when you look at the data, that's not what's going on. Uh, and so this may be somewhat challenging to people when they, when they take their Mormon narrative, they learned in James Talmadge's Jesus, the Christ, or in things like uh, the great apostasy and when we read those uh, books that we formulated our beliefs on within Mormonism, this kind of stuff is going to be challenging to those beliefs. But again, uh, maybe the suggestion is like 
we should never be afraid of data. We should never be afraid of the truth. Uh, if it points us in a different direction, we have to change things. Yeah. Thank you, Bill. You know, this, that, that specific topic, and I have a question for you, Bill, but uh, I was in an interesting position um, as a missionary where while I was there, about halfway through, they changed from the memorized six discussions to more of a um, uh, it was it was kind of this transition between the memorize six discussions and preach my gospel. Um, preach my gospel wasn't quite ready, but they were wanting to transition over to that. And the first discussion or the first message that you started to share with people during that transitionary period was the cycle of of apostasy within each of the dispensations. So you teach about, and then with the the most hyper focus, of course, on the great apostasy that we've been talking about today, right after the 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 apostles um, and the authority of God was off the earth, it basically sets up for the for the rest, restoration, which was actually only the third discussion um, when the six discussions were being taught uh, in in that way. It's a little side note. So, but my question for you, Bill, is 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 there those are these two um, ideas in conflict? The idea of a uh, an open, an open revelation, or a, a living and breathing church, and what it says in this paragraph of the the Lord's gospel being offered in its fullness is there is there contradiction there? Is there a concern there? If it's if it's fully restored, why is it still open? Right, you've got uh, President Uchtdorf a few years back saying that the restoration is ongoing. I think he said it in a priesthood session of General Conference that the, the restoration is ongoing, that there are things still being restored. And when we look at the uh, church in the last five years in positions that we used to hold versus things that we're now changing, just look at the temple and some of the uh, gender, maybe even what some people would call sexist things that had gone on that were kind of taken out. And so this idea that we're still tweaking, we're still, we're still doing stuff to this thing that changes it, then, then to say like, hey, it's been restored, it's in its fullness, those seem to, to fall short. Like we want to say on one hand, uh, we don't have all the keys, there's still things to be uh, implemented, there's still revelations to be had. And then on the other hand, say we're better than these other churches because we have the restored gospel, we have the fullness of the gospel, we, we are a more complete a more rich, which seems to counter those very words that were said before. Uh, it seems like Mormonism wants to have it both ways. It wants to say, look, we've got the truth and those guys don't. On the other hand, we don't have a fullness of the truth. And so God is still restoring things. Right. Yeah, this this is uh, this is difficult for, uh, for someone. I, but tell you about an experience I had when... Um, I was actually trying to pull up the conversation now, but that's that's okay. I don't need to read uh, exactly. But looking at the the policy of exclusion, I call it the revelation of exclusion uh, on children of LGBT um, uh, parents. I had a conversation with with a friend on Facebook, um, a private conversation, not on anywhere live, and 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 it, that's th- this exact problem was was what we were talking about of. I was saying this this revelation is hurtful it's harmful it's it's not something that I see can be attributed to God and my friend 
defended it on this is actually protecting the families. It's it's the most loving thing that that God can do for these families and for these children. And you know, they, they he kind of stuck his stuck his flag into that into that claim of this is protection for the children, protection for the families. But then what happens when it's reversed? Right? That revelation gets reversed by another revelation. And all of a sudden, like, I didn't go back to him. I thought it was a little bit uh, immature to go back and say, so does God not care about the children? Because I thought that this, that exclusion policy was the most loving thing he can do. He is all loving after all. And now he isn't. He's taking that back. It's just, it, it's a constant uh, moving the goalpost that, that, is, that is difficult when you're trying to point at something that could be harmful because you can always point to, well, we're just not ready for this revelation. We're just not ready for the next evolution of the gospel or restoration of the gospel. It's, it can be a little frustrating. We're, we're always pointing to this idea that, you know, we are a church led by prophets, seers, and revelators. God talks to these men. Therefore, you can trust in the consistency of our teachings. And then the reality is that uh, the church is very much on all, essentially, again, if you read Charlie Harrell's book, uh, Charlie makes the argument that there really is no doctrine in the Church of uh, Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that hasn't changed. And when you understand that, you sense like that that line from John Kerry when he ran for president, uh, I was for it before I was against it. And this idea that Mormonism changes positions uh, throughout its history on almost everything and, and so this idea that, hey, we, you can trust us, we're better at this than the rest of these guys, again, misses the, the full context of its history. Right. So take, take your vitamins, right? Uh, yeah, because things are changing. Right. <laughs> so I, I would mention that, um, you know, all of us know and have friendships and love people who do have some faithful reconciliations with regard to these things. And, and they're reconciliation is that human beings are fallible and the brethren are just as fallible as we are. And, you know, God, their argue, their view or reconciliation is God's hand is in this and we mess it up. And sometimes we have a hard time perceiving between our own biases and prejudices, but eventually we'll all work it out in the end. And that's how they develop a faithful reconciliation of things. I, I think the pushback or the challenge that I would give is that, is that I don't sense that the brethren are presenting themselves in that way, uh, or or that the canon presents itself in that way. Uh, but I do understand that there are people that have developed faithful reconciliations with regard to the kinds of things we're talking about. Yeah, the question that that I ask when when uh, that faithful uh, position is is taken that that these men are mis- are men. They, they make mistakes, even though they have this pr- prophetic mantle. I, I ask the question, and maybe not directly to them, but I ask myself, okay, uh, name, name a mistake they've made. Name a mistake in policy and doctrine. What, name a mistake. And it, it goes back to that. You probably have heard this, this, um, this couplet. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but the you know, Catholics, um, Catholics say that the Pope is infallible, but no one believes it. And Mormons say that the prophet uh, is fallible, but nobody believes it. Uh, there, there's the idea that they can make mistakes is part of our part of the theology. But when pressed, they, you, 
you can't point at any single thing because once you open that door, uh, it's it's hard to close. It's hard to put the toothpaste toothpaste back in the tube. Okay. Yeah, and, and I just want to add one last thing, which is on the other side of it is a reason folks like us struggle with some of this is that we look at the church and we say, okay, let's allow them to be fallible, but there still has to be something different. There has to be some level of really talking to God and getting real truth and being able to discern truth from error. That's that's the advantage of Mormonism over the rest of religion. And yet when I look at the actual data, the history as it's unfolded, um, specifically in the last, say, 100 years, it's a struggle for someone like me to see any level of the divine beyond what the rest of the world has. In other words, I don't see this church acting any differently in terms of having greater access to discernment or truth than I see other religious denominations uh, within, within the religious landscape. All right. Anthony, can you read uh, the next paragraph? Members of creedal churches? Members of creedal churches oftenly mistakenly assume that all Christians have always agreed and must agree on a a historically static, monolithic collection of beliefs. As many scholars have acknowledged, however, Christians have vigorously disagreed about virtually every issue of theology and practice through the centuries leading to the creation of a multitude of Christian denominations. Although the doctrine of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints differs from that of many creedal Christian churches, it is consistent with early Christianity. One who sincerely loves, worships, and follows Christ should be free to claim his or her understanding of the doctrine according to the dictates of his or her conscience without being branded as non-Christian. Anthony, why don't you give us your thoughts on that before we move to the next uh, paragraph? Yeah, so, I mean, we, I, we've kind of already addressed uh, this a little bit, is that I, I think that it's uh, very complex and somewhat problematic to suggest that whatever contemporary Latter-day Saint uh, doctrine is, that it's entirely consistent with early Christianity. Uh, it, I think the hist- historical record shows that it's not even consistent with uh, our own history uh, of doctrine. Um, I, I do. Uh, th- this might be out of a pl- out of place, but I would insert at this point because they're talking about uh, the dictates of our own conscience uh, uh, of how we view and understand Christ. The the paragraph I think that should be in here um, that that it wasn't in here is that I I think that we need to acknowledge that contemporary Latter-day Saint Jesus is is quite different, you know, in the view of many people from the New Testament Jesus or even from Book of Mormon Jesus. Contemporary Latter-day Saint Jesus is our literal spirit brother and the spirit brother of Lucifer. We are co-eternal with him. He didn't like exist eternally before us, we're co-eternal with him, which means that he, uh, you know, it makes it hard to reconcile him as literally being Alpha and Omega. Um, To get into Jesus, contemporary Latter-day Saint Jesus is concerned about whether we memorize tokens, signs, or keywords in a temple or clothing that we wear, like garments, 
or whether we've adopted rituals that uh, are largely based on Freemasonry in our worship. And contemporary Latter-day Saint Jesus, uh, at least today, is now concerned with the website uh, addresses that we have and how we label ourselves as Latter-day Saints instead of Mormons. Um, And uh, while he's doing that, uh, contemporary Latter-day Saint Jesus is somehow fine with the majority of our talks and lessons being more about prophets and priesthood uh, than about Jesus. Um, So um, contemporary Latter-day Saint Jesus might even, you know, as a resurrected uh, being, might hang out with Father in Heaven on a literal, physical, uh, crystallized planet uh, with God's many wives uh, out there in the universe in a literal place near a star called Kolob. Um, And I I think that we need to do better in acknowledging that contemporary Latter-day Saint Jesus is a very different Jesus than for the majority of Christianity. And the things that I just shared have nothing to do with Book of Mormon Jesus, and I don't think they really have anything to do with New Testament Jesus either. Yeah, it it seems as though Jesus has some type of multiple personality disorder, that when you look at the Jesus of the New Testament, and if you read the New Testament with your bias kind of set aside from what you've been ingrained in with Mormonism, that Jesus is very different from Book of Mormon Jesus, very different from modern-day Jesus, as you're pointing out. All right. The the last of the three that we'll read um, or that the essay presents is Latter-day Saints Believe in an Open Canon. I'm actually going to read uh, two paragraphs and uh, some warning for you, Bill. I'm going to throw it to you. So Latter-day Saints Believe in an Open Canon. <clears throat> a third justification argued to label Latter-day Saints as non-Christian has to do with their belief in an open scriptural canon. For those making this argument, to be a Christian means to assent to the principle of sola scriptura, or the self-sufficiency of the Bible. But to claim that the Bible is the sole and final word of God, more specifically the final written word of God, is to claim more for the Bible than it claims for itself. Nowhere does the Bible proclaim that all revelations from God would be gathered into a single volume to be forever closed, and that no further scriptural revelation could be received. Moreover, Not all Christian churches are certain that Christianity must be defined by commitment to a closed canon. In truth, the argument for exclusion by closed canon appears to be used selectively to exclude the Latter-day Saints from being called Christian. No branch of Christianity limits itself entirely to the biblical text in making doctrinal decisions and in applying biblical principles. Roman Catholics, for example, turn to church tradition and magisterium, meaning teachers, including popes and councils, for answers. Protestants, particularly uh, evangelicals, turn to linguists and scripture scholars for their answers, as well as to post-New Testament church councils and creeds. For many Christians, these councils and creeds are every bit as canonical as the Bible itself. To establish doctrine and to understand the biblical text, Latter-day Saints turn to living prophets and to additional books of scripture, the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and Pearl of Great Price. So this is where I get a little flustered. And first, let me say this too. I want to apologize to the audience. As we're talking about all this biblical data, the biblical scholarship, I feel like I'm stammering a ton because I recognize the gulf between the things we're trying to talk about in the lack of 
being informed on these things by the average Latter-day Saints, no average Latter-day Saint, no offense. Um, to, to dive into this is difficult. And so it takes a ton of reading to begin to understand some of these things. And so maybe this episode will come off as like super boring and over the head. Um, but when I look at the claim here that Mormonism has an open canon and we've got prophets, seers, and revelators, and then I look at the modern day church and I see these top 15 men who claim these titles and our canon, I mean, the last time we put something in was 1978, and that can be highly debated about what kind of revelation that was and what, what it came in response to. And, and so when you look from 1978 to 2019, and what we've got is lowering the missionary age, putting a homophobic policy in place, and then retracting it three years later and then changing church to two hours, and then removing all the sexism in the temple, along with other little things that are out there, you start to sense, like, to claim that we're receiving these big dynamic revelations, because we've got prophets, seers, and revelators, and as I watch the rubber meets the road actual experience of Mormonism in the last 40 years, I see a faith that is struggling to... to uh, discern some significant revelation for the human race and for the members of the church, even. That was great. Uh, Anthony, anything to, to add there, Bill? I, that was very well said. Yeah, so I, I had a very recent discussion with some friends who are amateur LDS apologists uh, on these to- topics, and and what seems to be being expressed here, uh, topics of uh, biblical studies and so forth, what, what this paragraph seems to be expressing is that we have modern-day prophets to help us interpret all this stuff. But, you know, I question whether our modern, you know, out of the First Presidency and Corman the Twelve, how many of them know that Paul didn't write Hebrews? Um, how many of them know that the book of Daniel is a pseudepigraphic work that was written, you know, more than a hundred years after the fact? It wasn't written by Daniel that um, whoever wrote it maybe wrote it around 167 uh, years uh, BC, uh, before Christ, and that the, the four kingdoms and the story of the stone cut out of the mountain was specifically referring to something that had already happened. It wasn't a prophecy that was given in advance and so forth. So, so you know, biblical scholars understand and appreciate, you know, outside of literalist evangelicals, um, that the book of Daniel is a pseudepigraphic text, that it's not a prophecy, and, and so forth. And so, you know, my question was, if these are prophets, seers, and revelators, shouldn't they be able to have the discernment to know that they're, they're, they might be misappropriating a pseudepigraphic work, something that was uh, falsely attributed to Daniel that was written after the fact that re- wasn't really an apost- uh, a prophecy, to attribute the stone cut out of the mountain narrative to to be the modern day Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints and and that's part of this struggle is we say that we have modern day prophets and apostles that have discernment and so forth and that can they can help us interpret biblical texts but then when we point out that there are problems then at least my friends who are apologists will say well they're not biblical scholars what they're supposed to do is look at the information and see how it applies to our day, whether or not 
the book of Daniel was an actual prophecy or not. And, and so it gets messy when we get into these things. Anthony, let me ask you this real quick. And then, well, you know, I know we've, uh, we've got to wrap this up here. I hear what you just said. And I, if from the perspective of a, of a believing, or let's not even classify them as believing, as some, someone that the church is working for them, brings them great happiness. Why in the world would I want to learn all of this deep stuff when I know that it can lead me away from the church? Is it enough? Is it a valid response to say, this works for me, man. I don't want to learn about Daniel not being written by Daniel or did Moses actually exist? Like, I don't, I'm happy in my, where I'm at. <laughs> what, that's something that's, that's kind of triggering in my head as we're talking about some of these things. Any response to something like that? Well, th- well, that's the metaphorical shelf, right? That we set things aside in faith that we'll understand things in the future and that we'll have further light knowledge. And all three of us did this. Like, we shelved things. I was exposed to the problems with the Book of Abraham uh, almost 20 years ago. And, and I, I recognized that it was problematic, but I shelved it in faith because I didn't want to give up what my interpretation was of my spiritual experiences at the time. And so, you know, I, I don't know that it's helpful to put a value judgment on saying whether it's valid or not to, to not want to understand these things. I, I would say that for myself, for my own journey, it was brittle to not study these things. And, and it set me up for an extremely painful faith crisis um, because not studying these things it, for me was brittle and it resulted in an extremely painful sense of loss of identity and loss of role. And I had to reconstruct everything, my spiritual experiences, my sense of what God and divinity is and so forth. So um, I, I don't know that if it's br- that it's brittle for everyone. I mean, it worked for me until it didn't. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Bill, can you read this, this last paragraph before the conclusion? Together with the Old and New Testaments, the Book of Mormon supports an unequivocal testimony of Jesus Christ. One passage says the Book of Mormon shall establish the truth of the Bible and shall make known to all kindreds, tongues, and peoples that the Lamb of God is the Son of the Eternal Father and the Savior of the world, and that all men must come unto Him or they cannot be saved. In its more than 6,000 verses, the Book of Mormon refers to Jesus Christ almost 4,000 times and by over 100 different names, Jehovah, Emmanuel, Holy Messiah, Lamb of God, Redeemer of Israel, and so on. The Book of Mormon is indeed another testament of Jesus Christ, as its title page proclaims. I, I I would simply say here, yes, the Book of Mormon does that. No, we don't necessarily utilize the Book of Mormon Jesus, and the Jesus of Mormonism is, as Anthony pointed out, much different And I think it's easy for the church to point to the Book of Mormon here, um, but it isn't necessarily pointing to what it does in the modern moment in its own outward behavior uh, in terms of what it talks about or writes about, because this really sometimes isn't the focus of Mormonism uh, in modern times. Thanks, Bill. And yeah, I look at uh, the fact that there are so many mentions of Jesus Christ, including before before he was born, that name being used before he was born, where that doesn't happen in the Old Testament, that that's actually a little bit suspicious of when the Book of Mormon came to be. So again, it, it works until it doesn't. Uh, and But that was one of the things for me that was added to my shelf when I was looking into the, the Book of Mormon versus the Old, Te- the Old New Testament is, man, how did these, why didn't the prophets of the Old Testament know about Christ enough to actually use that 
that name uh, when the Book of Mormon prophets did. Okay, I'm going to read the conclusion real quick. Converts across the world continue to join the the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in part because of its doctrinal and spiritual distinctiveness. That distinctiveness flows from the knowledge restored to this earth, together with the power of the Holy Ghost present in the Church because of restored priesthood authority, keys, ordinances, and the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fruits of the restored gospel are evident in the lives of its faithful members. While members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints have no desire to compromise the distinctiveness of the restored Church of Jesus Christ, they wish to work together with other Christians and people of all faiths to recognize and remedy many of the moral and family issues faced by society. The Christian conversation is richer for what the Latter-day Saints bring to the table. There is no good reason for Christian faiths to ostracize each other when there has never been more urgent need for unity in proclaiming the divinity of and teachings of Jesus Christ. Yeah, I, I would say amen. I, I love that last paragraph. I, I, I think that that should have been the tone of the entire uh, essay, is that we can work together, we can find commonalities, uh, and we can act in faith to try to make a, a difference in the world. The teachings attributed to, to Jesus Christ that resonate for me include uh, in Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 through 40, uh, where Jesus, where, with the parable of the sheep and the goats, uh, Jesus expresses that if we uh, feed the hungry and clothe the naked and give drink to the thirsty and shelter the stranger and vi- visit the uh, sick and the imprisoned, um, that we're that that's what we need to do to be part of the kingdom of God. And my my perception is that at least my view of Christianity is doing those kinds of things. And what an amazing thing it would be uh, if we can increase our capacity to do those kinds of things uh, inside and outside of the Latter-day Saint Church and join with others of other Christian faiths, as well as people that don't have uh, an Orthodox Christian faith in doing those kinds of things. Thank you for saying that. I think it's an awesome message to leave this on. It's a very positive message to leave this on. Uh, I'm with you 100%, and it seems like... Uh, more recently, um, more recently, the the church does want to do that. Does want to um, see you know President Nelson's visit to the Vatican, for example, and, and in Rome, uh, th- those types of things of aligning themselves with with Christianity. Um, hopefully, in the spirit of um, focusing on those teachings of Christ, uh, and not so much on and us versus them, the world is evil, the world is bad, but focusing on the positive is, is absolutely where I'd love to see the church, uh, the church take it uh, and continue in, in that field. Bill, any, any final thoughts? I, uh, I agree with Anthony that uh, this last paragraph was beautiful. Uh, in summation, I guess what I would add is a couple of little points. Uh, I, I think this essay was not written to the non-Mormon community. It was written to the members and it was more of a rah-rah for them. Like, yeah, we're Christian. Uh, That feels like that's the intention of the essay is to kind of circle the wagons and have the member feel good about, yes, we worship Jesus. Yes, we're a Christian faith. It doesn't seem to be intended for the evangelical to read and go, oh yeah, Mormons are Christians. I can see that. It also, just to reiterate what I said earlier, which is that there is this huge gulf, this huge divide between how the average Latter-day Saint understands the New Testament 
the authors of it, the uh, continuity or contradiction of Jesus in the various gospels, as well as in the epistles of Paul and others. And the average Latter-day Saint, much of what we said, I think, is going to go over their head unless you take the time. If you're listening, I would suggest it. Go to this episode. Look at the footnotes uh, in this episode. There are tons of resources. Uh, Do what Anthony said, which is read Bart Ehrman. Uh, Check out Riza Aslan's book, Zealot. Uh, The only way to understand this data, because the LDS Church isn't going to present the biblical scholarship so you're going to have to read it yourself is to go in and start reading books listening to podcasts reading resources outside of mormonism and once you understand the complexity of the historical jesus unfortunately things get messy i i also want to just note that this essay while all the other essays seem to be a response to people who are losing faith inside Mormonism over issues, specifically historical. This essay, no one's going to lose faith over the question, at least very few Mormons, I should say it that way, very few Mormons are going to lose faith over the question of are we Christian or not. But again, once one begins to lose faith in Mormonism, if they find problems too severe in the history and on social issues to overcome, the next thing that most Latter-day Saints deconstructing their Mormonism do is they begin to go into Christianity and the historical Jesus and deconstruct that as well. And and so uh, this essay presupposes a lot of things, and the only way to really understand the context of our Mormons Christian and what the arguments are, and where the data points us to so that you can understand, again, the complexity of Jesus himself, is to take some time and to try and learn and read and study and think about the data that's out there. Anthony, anything anything else as we before we wrap up? And that, or I'll just do a quick goodbye. Um, I'd just say that I'm looking forward to next week to unpack... Uh, Book of Mormon translation. Oh boy, big topic. If we thought today would be a little half an hour uh, episode, and so next week maybe six hours, <laughs> not probably not. But probably not. We're we're very excited to to dig into that as well. If there are other topics you'd like us to cover uh, before we jump into other ones, we certainly have our our interests. But we'd love to hear from you as well. You can chat any of us on Facebook and let us know uh, what you think up to this point. You can go to Mormon Discussions. Uh, uh, website and and uh, engage in conversation there as well. Thank you very much for for paying attention and listening today. Uh, now, hopefully, you can now answer the question: Are Mormons Christian? Hmm. We'll leave it up to you. Thanks so much for listening. Bye bye.